0: Morning everyone. Uh, let's turn to the book of James 1. Normally as we're uh, reading scripture there's not commentary that goes with it but you got to excuse me cuz you guys have got to catch the excitement of this morning. You know as we look through the scripture there's 66 books in here and they're all so useful for everyday life but if I had to pick one as my absolute favorite it's the book of James and James 1 is at the forefront. You can use James every single day of life because we're all going to face trials. We're going to face big trials. We're going to face little trials. But every day, there's, to some degree, a trial that goes with that. And so as you face and read James, your first thought would be, "Ah, I've got these trials to go through. Where's the excitement in that? Well, it's true. We're going to face those trials, but we can have the confidence as we're facing those trials that the Lord is growing us, he's working us, and there's something that's going to be good that's going to come from that trial. But also, the biggest comfort is, is if he's in that trial, then he's walking with us in that trial. And I take a lot of joy and comfort in that. So, get excited this morning. We're reading James 1. (laughs) All right, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, Steve's going to first focus on verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the trusting of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers of the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Then desire is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift from, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You may be seated. Good morning. I
1: ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study. Father, it's good to have your word before us. We thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that your word stands eternal, firm in the heavens. We thank you that your word, hearing of your word, is what brings about saving faith. Your word tells us, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by this word of God. Father, this word of God is instructive for us in all manner of life, precepts, principles. We look to your word and we find that we can know how to live this life We look to your word and, being in Christ, having the spirit of Christ within us, we can know how to navigate through life's trials. Father, I thank you for this particular book that helps us to be able to see with great clarity the intended path to walk in the midst of trials. May we have ears to hear, Lord, what you have to say. Father, I pray that as we hear your word, hear what your word has to say, that we would incline our hearts to move in the direction you've called us to move, and that we might show and exhibit with our lives this faith you've granted to us. Father, I pray that our faith in Christ would be much more than a mere profession. May it be evident in the lives that we live. And may you get great glory through that faith that gets put on display. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whenever you take up studying a a new book of the Bible, like we're doing this morning, it's always helpful, I find, to have a bit of context. It's helpful on a week-to-week to have some context as well, but especially as we're working through a book of the Bible, having a proper context to what we're reading Helps us be able to see with even greater clarity what the writer is. He's moved by the Holy Spirit. What he is endeavoring to say. The plan, Lord willing, over these next several weeks. In fact, just as a side note, this study right now tentatively is going to take us through the month of May. So you can just think of it this way. That by the time we get to the end of James, it's... Probably going to be a little warmer, and uh, we can hold on there a little bit for some of you that are wrestling and having a hard time with this. Um, Hey, it's winter, it's winter, and it's cold, it's snowing, but God's word is alive and active, and we're going to study his word this morning, and I pray that his word will breathe life and breathe hope. And to each one of you here this morning. So we are on a journey beginning today in the book of James. And you know, as we begin a new book study, I always find it interesting and, and helpful to draw your attention to the work yet to be done here. What do you mean? I mean, I want to encourage you as we work through this book, perhaps take up notebook and pen To take some notes, not just on a Sunday message. But to make the book of James your own study. Asking of God throughout this study what he would have you to know in his word. Making notes of what God is teaching you. Through this short but life impacting book of James. As you begin to study this book yourself... You'll begin to see that God is concerned about your faith and how your faith gets worked out in the course of your life. And while I encourage each one of you to be present throughout this study, I also want to up front actively encourage you to pursue the Lord here, pursue Him, read this book, read James. Hopefully you did that this week. You read the entirety of it. Read it again and read it again and read it thoroughly. Read it to hear from the spirit how he would desire for you to walk out your faith in Christ. One writer says, speaking of James and his purpose here, he says, James is concerned with the fact that Christian faith is more than mere profession. Throughout the epistle, his concern is to impress on his readers the fact that Christianity is not a faith merely, but through the power of faith, a life. A saving faith is a living and active faith. It proves that it is alive by what it does. The reality of a living faith is demonstrated by its reaction under adversity. And we'll see some of this even yet today as we begin Looking, James chapter 1. We see the testing of your faith is spoken of here in verse 3. The testing of your faith. And all throughout this book, really the testing is going to be put on display. In some different areas as we get to. Move through chapters one through five. We'll see some of these tests. They get put into play. Testing of your faith, the proof of your faith. You know, I hear from time to time, people say they, they just don't understand the Bible. You heard anybody say that? I just don't get it. It's it it's just seems so old. It seems so outdated. It happened such a long time ago, and the language. You know, I just don't understand all the language and. James, as he's writing here, he writes with a pastoral heart to the scattered church. He's not writing to primarily explain theological difficulties or to lay out God's plan of salvation. Nor is he writing to address an individual, per se, or provide some course correction for an erring church, i.e. Corinth. James very well may be the simplest book in the scripture to get, to understand. That being said, if we have the spirit of Christ in us, each of these books can be understood for seeking the Lord. James, if you read through it, has this Emphasis on the practical, ethical, moral ways of living in Christ. And in saying it's practical, I want to put forward, in case one is equating practical... See, practical does not equate in the book of James with fluff. Soft. Practical means the idea that, as James puts this forward, and we think there are 108 verses here. Not very many verses. They're loaded with practical instruction. What kind of instruction? Imperative kind of instruction. Do we know what we mean when we say imperative kind of instruction? This is what you need to be doing. Command kind of instruction. Someone said there's 54, if you read through, 54 imperatives scattered throughout this short book. That's a lot of imperatives for a short book. 54 in 108 verses. These imperatives, church, are intended to move you toward living out the faith that you hold in Christ Jesus. Now, James is a pastor writing to his scattered flock abroad. We see that. It's addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered, are in a dispersion. He's writing, he's warning them, he's calling them, he's pointing them right in the midst of the trials that they are in to the importance of living, active faith and reminding them that this faith is not grounded solely on what you know. In the fires of adversity, what you know about Jesus is no doubt important. But how you live out what you know, or to put it another way, taking the knowledge of Christ and applying that to your life, that's appropriating godly wisdom in your life. James, I believe, is driving at that as he's writing here in this epistle. James is writing to a group of people familiar with Abraham and Isaac. Chapter 2, verse 21, he mentions Abraham and Isaac. Chapter 2, verse 25, he mentions Rahab. Chapter 5, verse 11, he mentions this man named Job. And at the end of chapter 5, he mentions a man named Elijah. It's interesting that in looking at the people that he includes in this particular letter... People that make up the whole of the Old Testament canon. Abraham and Isaac thinking of the law. Job in the wisdom literature. And Elijah, of the prophets. He's using this and his audience would have been very familiar with these people. The book is written to Jewish Christians having been scattered from their home in Jerusalem... James pens this letter in the fires of adversity for God's people. And we see in Acts chapter 7, and Acts chapter 8, we read of Stephen's martyrdom. You remember that? We covered that last summer. The martyrdom of Stephen. Well, right on the heels of Stephen's martyrdom, the church is what? Scattered. The church is persecuted. The Bible says that the church scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. We see there that the gospel moves out of Jerusalem, not due to some great church growth plan. But by means of fiery persecution. Church, God uses persecution. He uses trials to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not long after that period of persecution, we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Herod Agrippa I was persecuting the church. You might recall he kills James, the brother of John. Not the James we're speaking of here, the writer. But James, the brother of John, kills him with the sword in an effort to please his Jewish constituents. He then has in mind to kill Peter. But God had other plans and he rescues him from prison in answer to the prayers of the church. So we have a persecuted church We oftentimes are reminded to pray for this persecuted church even today, aren't we? That describes the church here at Jerusalem at this time of writing. The believers of the way, the followers of Jesus. Persecution was no stranger to them at this time in history. Herod's persecution happens around 44 AD. The letter of James is thought to be written in the mid-40s. Some point... Before the Jerusalem Council, which was around 49 A.D. So mid-40s is what we're looking at on the timeline of history in terms of this book being written. James writes with authority in this epistle. All the imperatives tell us that he's writing with great authority. Okay? Writing with authority... And while he is not one of the original 12 apostles, we see in the scripture that the Lord uses James in a mighty way to lead God's people in the church at Jerusalem. James is considered the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Mark chapter 6 verse 3, we see him listed there. He's also the brother of Jude who penned the book of Jude. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, this James, he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that. His brothers did not believe him during his earthly ministry. After Christ's resurrection, though, James became a believer. And and Christ appeared specifically to him. We see that in Corinthians 15, verse 7. Christ made an appearance to James. James is one of the many who are gathered for prayer in that upper room in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, following the ascension of Christ and as a prelude before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We see that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers are present there in the upper room gathering. James is the one who takes over leadership in the Jerusalem church following Peter's release from prison in Acts chapter 12. This James is the one who speaks authoritatively at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And when you turn to the pages in the book of Galatians, you see this verse in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. But I, that's Paul, saw none of the other apostles except James... ...the Lord's brother. Paul here identifies this James... ...as the Lord's brother. We see just a few verses later... ...in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9... ...when James, Cephas, that's Peter... ...James, Peter, and John... ...who seem to be pillars... ...Paul writes these words. We see here in the text... ...that James is designated a pillar... ...in the church at Jerusalem... ...a man of authority... This letter of James comes during the early years and development of the church. We see in the book of James there's mention of teachers in chapter 3. He says, let not many of you become teachers. But here we we don't see a specific connection per se to the teacher's role in the assembly. And yet we see at the end of James mention of elders. Elders are mentioned in James chapter 5 as connected with the church. To whom the flock should turn when one is sick. We see some evidences of the church. But we see in the context. James is writing really in the beginning stages of the development of the church. It's important for us to see that. Even as we study it. Keep in mind as you read this epistle. That James has been shepherding the church in Jerusalem. He serves a pastoral elder, leader role in the church. And so all the instruction put forth in these five chapters comes from someone familiar with God's word, someone familiar with God's church, someone familiar with the head of the church, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that last statement for just a moment. This letter is penned by a brother of Jesus. Jesus. One who saw Jesus day in and day out probably, saw him quite often, interacted with him, ate meals perhaps with him, heard him speak, saw the way that he interacted with other people, picked up on all his tendencies as a man and eventually, and here's the good news, eventually was drawn to recognize Jesus as someone greater than his earthly brother. You see, James crossed over from death to life upon seeing Jesus being raised from death to life. Isn't that great? James himself crossed over. But it was after the resurrection of Jesus. After the resurrection, James and his brothers believed that Jesus was truly the Son of God and that believing in Him, they could have everlasting life. This is the James who pens the words that we have open before us. This is the James, used by the Holy Spirit to speak life and breathe hope into this group of scattered believers. And you know, as you consider his earthly relationship with Jesus, it may seem odd to read the opening verse in James. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Rejoice. Literally is what that means. Here in these opening. This opening first verse. James allows us a look and see. A window into a few particular details. The first being the writer himself. He names himself. Puts himself forward. He's the writer. James. But we see also. On the heels of identifying the writer, we see James identifying the relationship of the writer to God. You know, just, I think it's an important thing. It may seem like a small thing, but I think it's important that each of us here know who we are in Christ and know how to identify ourselves, being in Christ Jesus. You see, James identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A few things I want to point out here I think are very important. First of all, that word bondservant, or some of your translations might have slave. One who is in permanent relation of servitude to another. Okay? A bondservant. James identifies himself. James identifies his relationship with God and with Jesus... As a bondservant or as a slave. Remember, James was the brother of Jesus. And I, I got to thinking, you know, how many of us at this point would consider a, just a little, just, just a tiny bit of name dropping at this point? I, I, I probably, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm just trying to put forward how I might respond to this. If, if he was my brother... I'm James, the brother of Jesus. Remember all that Jesus did? That's my brother. Remember all those miracles he performed? He's my brother. You see where I'm going with this. I think it'd been really easy for James to have just done some name dropping and put forward. He's my brother. But we don't see evidence of that right here. Instead, how does he identify himself? A bondservant. He identifies himself in relationship to God and Jesus as a slave. Does this tell you something about James? Does this tell you anything at all about his humility? About how God has humbled him? About how God has awakened him to his rightful alignment and place, submission under the authority of God? God. In fact, it gets better as we continue looking at this introduction. Not only does he say he's a bondservant of God and Jesus, but I want you to notice too how he he identifies Jesus. Look, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, James not only identifies himself right here in relationship to Jesus, but he identifies his relationship. He says, he is my Lord I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for James, the fact that Jesus was his Lord far outweighed the fact that he was his earthly brother. Church, just as a side note, that is instructive for us because just as we have relationships in our earthly family units, husband, wife, father, son, daughter, mother, There is something, as great as that is, there is something even better than those relationships. And that is that relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this evident in James. James prioritizes and he places forward his identity with Jesus. He doesn't mention that he is his brother. I want you to get what he does mention Jesus is my Lord. James 7, or excuse me, John 7, verse 5, says that Jesus' brothers, which would include James, did not believe in him at that time. But here in the first verse of this epistle, as he opens up this letter, James makes clear where he stands with Jesus. He is my Lord. This is who I'm following now with my life. Is he your Lord, church? We see he addresses an audience here. To the 12 tribes scattered abroad. These 12 tribes would have been recognizable. A recognizable address to a group of Jewish Christians familiar with the history of God's people. 12 tribes, you think of 12 tribes of Israel. Context tells you that James is speaking to other brothers in the Lord, to those in the faith. And then you have a very general one word opener, a welcome, greetings or rejoice. It's interesting that that's the welcome because he's going to continue that idea of rejoicing in the very next verse. So from verse 1, James is quick then to address the condition of his audience. Church, we must, as we read through a book of scripture, we must understand why the writer is writing, to whom he is writing. When we get some picture of what's going on, it's then that we begin asking those questions and asking of the Lord, how then do we apply this text? Please don't begin with the application. He's going to now address the condition of his audience. He doesn't waste any time. Addressing their situation as a scattered flock in need of instruction and encouragement. The pastor has not abandoned his flock. Praise the Lord. You see, when the sheep are scattered because of persecution... Does the pastor put his word on hold or withhold his word altogether? And we see here evidence that no, he does not. He's speaking, he's proclaiming words of encouragement and hope in the midst of what is a very trying time for the people of God. God's people need to hear God's word, not just when they arrive on Sunday morning and are sitting in a chair. God's people need to also hear God's word rushing over them, Flowing through them in the midst of the trials that they encounter. And that's exactly what we have here. God's people going through a fiery trial and God's spokesman. Helping God's people navigate through the trial by means of God's word. Fueled by God's good spirit. He's putting God's word into play in the midst of their condition, their trial. And so we see James 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into or when you meet or when you encounter, when you find yourself surrounded by trials, various trials, knowing that the testing or the proof, evidence of your faith produces or develops patience, well, I believe the better rendering here is perseverance. Some of your translations may have perseverance here. Literally, the way this begins in the original language, all joy, you all count it. All joy, you all count it. The tendency when you arrive at James 1, 2, 3, and 4, Is to wonder how to how you reconcile counting it all joy in the midst of your various trials. Anybody ever thought that as you read? How am I supposed to consider this joy when I'm going through a trial? What possible connection does my trial have with joy? They don't seem to fit together, Lord. I'm supposed to be joyful. And the emphasis here is placed upon all joy. That's moved to the beginning of the sentence. And In Greek language, oftentimes, what gets moved to the front is often the intent, the, the, the look and see. I want you to see this. It's usually in the front of the sentence. So what's he wanting us to see in this right at the beginning? All joy. All joy. Full joy. Supreme joy. Has in mind Unmixed joy and joy alone, nothing added to it. That kind of joy. And yes, the answer to the question as to whether I'm to be joyful through this trial. The answer is yes, but not simply because God says so. While that's a good reason to do it because God said so, there are some good reasons to count it all joy when you meet trials, when you encounter trials head on. First of all, it's good to know that the trials you face are not without purpose, nor do they happen by chance. The trials that you face are intended to, the scripture says, produce something in you. Producing something that is productive in you. Church, listen. This is God's way. This is God's way. These trials that come, they are intended to produce something. I think I mentioned in my email. One of the, I have two words at the top of this book in my Bible. Trials produce They produce something. And in the moment, I may not know exactly what that is. All the more reason for me to hold on and to persevere. That's what God's doing. And as we'll see, there's more than just simply acknowledging the fact that we're to persevere through it. We see here that the question, what is that something productive? If it's producing something in me, what is that something it's producing according to the text? The Bible says patience or perseverance. What is this perseverance? Give you a handle on what that is. In the New Testament primarily, characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Someone who perseveres. The idea of perseverance implies there are obstacles for one to overcome. I know some in here have run a marathon. There are some obstacles to overcome when you run a marathon. The kind of perseverance we're talking about from the scripture is not the perseverance of you know, this, this waiting, so to speak. You think of patience and you might think of someone who's just simply waiting. I believe the word perseverance, this, it couples the idea of patient endurance. So it's, it's not the, uh, the idea of one sitting in the, the doctor's room waiting quietly for results from the doctor. This is the kind of perseverance, when we think about perseverance, it's active, it's pursuing It's enduring in the midst of some hardships, some struggles, some obstacles that are in the way. We're fighting through it. We keep on going. What does Perseverance Church do in you? Why is it a good thing to see that these, were to count it all joy when you fall into these trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces this perseverance, this patience. When you turn to the book of Romans, you get, you get to piece this together a little bit. In, in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 3, Paul says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. He uses the word tribulation, different word here. Tribulations. Knowing, we glory in those tribulations, Paul says. Knowing, what do we know? That tribulation produces what? Perseverance. Same word here we're looking at. What does perseverance then produce? Character, tested, approved character. What's that produce? Hope. Hope a good place to be. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. You see, we arrive at a place of hope. Perseverance leads to something. It's not perseverance just for the sake of persevering. It leads to something which is of great value, of great benefit for the one who is in Jesus Christ. We see coupled with Romans 5 in the very next book after James, 1 Peter. By the way, there are a lot of similarities. You probably can bounce back and forth in James and 1 Peter on a few different uh, occasions. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, In this, you greatly rejoice. In this, talking about this salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be. You have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith... The genuineness of your faith... Sounds like the testing of your faith... In James chapter 1. That the genuineness of your faith... Being much more precious than gold that perishes... Though it is tested by fire... May be found to praise, honor in glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see there's something greater here than simply just enduring? It leads to something. It does something. And the text is gonna tell us here in just a moment what it does, what its intended purpose is, what God's intended purpose is for this working in us. The trials James speaks of, they need to be considered in light of the context of his writing. Keep in mind that the church is in the midst of a trial of persecution. They've been scattered from their homes. And they find themselves out of their comfort zones. Have you ever been out of your comfort zone? Have you ever been knocked out of your comfort zone? Hadn't been of your choosing. But you've been removed from your comfort zone. You see, trials, according to James, are those things in your life that pull you away from your ordinary routine. <laughs> those things that require a change in the way that you've previously done things. Just found out late last night there's one in our body who's gone through the death of a loved one, lost his father. Maybe it's news of a debilitating disease of some kind. And life changes for you. It's not the way it always had been. You see, that's the kind of trial James is addressing to the scattered church. They had been living and operating in Jerusalem. Yes, they had had gone through persecution various times prior to this, but... Now they were in the midst of this trial that removed them from their home. You go through situations in your life that takes you out of what you've been accustomed to doing. How do you handle that? How do you navigate through that? I believe these are the questions to ask as we look at these trials that are being addressed. The loss of a job that has been producing income for your family. You now have to figure out how to operate through this change of circumstance. The roof starts leaking. You didn't wake up this morning and intend for the roof to start leaking. You were surrounded by a trial. You see, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, I believe these trials come in unexpected. In the unexpected. We don't plan oftentimes for these. The idea of falling into, finding yourself surrounded by trials. You're driving on the interstate and it's sub-zero temperatures and your car decides not to work anymore. A practical example, yes, pales in comparison to the persecution of the church that they were going through as James is writing. But it helps us to be able to see the kind of trials James has in mind as he's pinning these words. Trials, according to James, require faith, a tested faith. One writer said that faith is tested through trials, not produced by trials. Trials reveal what faith we do have, not because God doesn't know how much faith we have, but to make our faith evident. To ourselves and to those around us. You know, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in the Gospels. When I return, will there be anyone found with faith? Is there anybody going to be walking by faith? I believe James is teaching us something specific about the trials in our lives. Notice... He says, when you fall into various trials, or whenever, probably is even a better rendering. Whenever, whenever you fall into various trials. Is there anyone here who has not experienced a trial of some kind? Didn't think so. Now I would venture to say that for many of you who have gone through trials, you weren't necessarily planning on those trials to happen. I imagine that you didn't plan for a well to go out. We could go around the room. Each one of you have certain trials. How have you been navigating through those trials? Some of you still find yourself sitting right smack dab in the middle of the trial. Hopefully you find some comfort and some hope and some peace in this text today. Because it's intended to help us navigate and move God's way through the trial. Not to allow us to remain stuck. That's one of the things I like about Psalm 23. It sounds kind of gloomy at first, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Ooh. But the words, if we listen to what it's saying, though I walk through, though I'm, making, though I'm going through. I'm going through it. I'm making it through and not only am I making it through, but God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is with me through the trial, walking through it with me. So, these trials that come oftentimes unexpectedly, the text would call us and say, All joy. Remember, that's the beginning. All joy count it. Count it all joy. Nothing but joy. Joy and nothing else. Whenever you find yourself surrounded by trials, the imperative here is to count it or to consider it. And that's coupled with this all joy. James is advocating a biblical response. This is a response, a biblical response to trials that will come. And as for the church in Jerusalem... This is a trial they are currently in. Your response to trials is significant in light of what God desires to do through your trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various, that word various, manifold, multicolored trials. You see, the trials that we have, if we took time and we went down the rows and we talked about some trials that you are aware of in your life, some of your trials have severe spikes to them. They may be only a short length of time, but the severity is great. Some of you have gone through trials and maybe some of you are still going through trials that are long. They're difficult. Maybe they don't have the severity of the spike that another brother or sister might have, but these are long trials. The Bible is going to tell us something here in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 1, verse 12 about the brother and the sister, the one who endures is going to receive a crown of life. There's good news there, church. Persevere. Endure. Keep pressing on through this trial. Consider it all joy. Knowing, look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This knowing is an experiential kind of knowing. The knowing that comes through, listen to this, it comes through relationship. Relationship. A believer in Christ who goes through a trial is intended to know something about the God he serves. Why? Why? Because apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, apart from him being Lord of your life, you cannot truly know what James is writing about here. You pick up this word and if you're not in Christ, you pick this up and go, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. That, that's totally out of line. How could we do this? Joy and trials, that don't even match. All important, knowing, having a relationship with Jesus Christ. The word here, in fact, helps us. To be able to navigate and know what kind of knowing is characterized. We just take two verses for example. Matthew chapter 1 verse 25. The word knowing there is used in relationship to husband and wife. Joseph and Mary. Not knowing one another yet. An intimacy there. Described in marriage. But we see the word is also in John 17 verse 3. Jesus' prayer to the Father. This is eternal life. That they may... Know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. That they may experience, that they might know, that they might have relationship. This is the idea of this word knowing and what we're talking about here in the scripture. Knowing that the testing, count it all joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, perseverance. You see, brethren can count it All joy when trials come. And they can do that because they know something about God. No relationship with God through Jesus Christ. No sight to see what God is doing through the trial. The result, here's the result of that. No relationship with Christ. Here's the result. Hopelessness, bitterness, anger, frustration, desperation. Feeling you could probably put some more words in there. The hope of the believer is seen through the trial, how he handles the trial, how he speaks to others through the trial, how he gives God glory through the trial in what seems like tragic, unfair circumstances. Testimony to God's goodness in light of your trial causes others to shake their heads, scratch their foreheads, wondering, asking, but perhaps awakening them to the truth of knowing this Jesus as well. I don't know Jesus right now, but as I watch, and you fill in the blank of the name, as I watch so-and-so and how they are navigating through this trial, I want what he has. You see, you have opportunity in the midst of the trial that you encounter. You have opportunity not only to... Allow God to work in you this perseverance, which leads to something greater. We're going to see in verse 4. We're going to finish there. But you have opportunity to also influence others who are watching you. They're watching how you navigate the trial that you're in. They may know you as a Christian, and they're just waiting. They're just waiting to see. How is he going to handle this? The question becomes, are we going to please God even through the trial? Or are we going to essentially put our relationship with Christ on the shelf and try to handle this trial in our own way? Church, if we are in Christ, we must be about navigating the trial in the ways that he's called us to. And James, I can't think of a, of a greater book to be able to look at to help us in this arena. James is addressing a people group, a church been scattered because of persecution and he's giving them instruction as a pastor he's got a heart for these people and he's telling them hey i see i recognize the situation you're in here's how to navigate through it will you trust in god will you allow the faith the what you know about jesus christ to come shining through even in what seems like a dark dark situation Because if you do, not only is God going to work in and through that, but there are going to be others who are going to be drawn to Christ as well through your testimony. Count it all joy when you meet various trials knowing what? Knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. The testing of your faith produces per- perseverance, patience. I, I, I pray that if you hear nothing else, I, I pray that you would hear, that you would know what God, what God is after. What is, asking the question, what is God after here? He's about testing your faith. Some of us don't even like the idea of having our faith tested. For some of us, that is frightening to think about that. Why is he about that? I know from the Bible that God and his desire is nothing but good in your life. And you say, how is this trial good? Turn to Romans, please. A very familiar verse, oftentimes taken out of context, oftentimes taken and skewed. Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, here's a question we need to ask when we come to this. If, if, if here in 8.28 it says, we know that all things work together for good. A question as we read the text ought to be, well, what is that good? If you keep reading in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. Is that not the good that God is after? To be conformed to the image of his son. So, if that's what God's after, to conform each one of us, each one of his children, into the image of his son, I can rejoice in the trial. I can give thanks. The Bible calls us to give thanks in all situations, in all circumstances, to give him thanks because he is overseeing all things in our lives and, and he knows what is good for us. And he's gonna do what it takes to move us and draw us and conform us and mold us and shape us into the image of his son. That's a praise, church, to be able to recognize that. That's why it's so important that we know him because see, when you don't know him, you don't understand that peace. You don't understand that component of what God is doing. That it is God's goodness. Romans elsewhere says his goodness is leads, leads us to repentance. His goodness does that as well. Such good news. So don't chafe when trials come. But recognize that he is up to something. Something that has to do with refining and shaping you into the image of his son. One writer says that when God puts his own people into the furnace. He keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Think about that for just a moment. He knows how long and how much. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us, the Bible tells us this, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us. What does God say? And that we bring glory to him alone. We may question why he does it to begin with or why he doesn't turn down the heat or even turn it off. But our questions are only evidences. In some situations, this is true. Our questions, depending upon the, the, the driving force behind the question, causes us to ask, do we really believe what he has to say or not? Job 23.10 says, but he knows the way that I take When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Gold does not fear the fire. The furnace can only make the gold purer, brighter. You see, in light of what he's doing then through your trial, can you start to see why James says to count it all joy? All joy, you all count it. All joy. When you know God. And you have a relationship with him through Christ. You can be assured that any trial you encounter is met with the same guarantee. The testing or proof of your faith is producing perseverance. Perseverance leads to a proof character. A proof character provides hope, leads to that direction. And some might be inclined to think, is perseverance in me the objective? Is that all? I believe we land in verse 4. It speaks to what God does through perseverance's work. Look at verse four, but let patience. So it doesn't just end with the fact that these trials we encounter produce patience or perseverance. He says, but, understand something, but there's there's more than what you perhaps think going on in the midst of this trial, but let patience or perseverance have its perfect work. That by the way is another imperative. that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let patience have its perfect work. Perfect work. The work it's intended to accomplish. Someone said, as I was studying this week, they mentioned the fact that don't get in the way of God's work in your life. What's God doing in your life? Sometimes we short-circuit what God is doing in our life. The Bible says let, patience, let perseverance have its perfect work. Its perfect work. All that it's intended to accomplish. And there are times in our lives when we may not know exactly in the moment what that is. But we're to let that persevering have its perfect work. Who's in charge of making that perfect? Making that so? God is. He's the one who brings that about. Let it have its intended, completed finish. Some of us are so impatient, we want to just go our own way. Will you stand and allow God to do his work in your life through the trial. I guarantee you from what the word says. There's a beautiful conclusion to that. Let patience have its perfect work. There's a, there's a purpose clause attached to this. Why let patience have its perfect work? Why? Here's why. That you may be perfect. The word here, in large part, speaks to maturity, perfect. That you may be perfect. The Bible speaks a lot about maturity, doesn't it? Moving on. I think of Hebrews 5 and 6 there. Moving away from elementary things. Let's move on. I wanted to feed you some meat, but all I could give you was some milk because you're just like a new... you're You're just an infant. You've been in Christ for many years, but you're just an infant. Mature. Growing. Developing. In Christ. That's God's way. And I think some some of us need to hear this word this morning. This particular part. Because there are some in here who have been in Christ for many years. The evidence, the fruit, can't see it. Perhaps your own family members recognize that. Your life is intended to produce perseverance. That perseverance is to have its intended, completed result as God would have it. So that you might be mature. Paul talks about that in Philippians. Attaining to these things to showing that we're we're mature. Let's move on here. Let's be bigger than these little things we used to dabble with and used to be... Let's move on to maturity. Let's grow up. And that's what considering it and counting it pure joy in the midst of trials looks like. That's what God is, is desiring. He's attempting to do that in us. If we'll allow him to do his perfect work, the result is there's going to be a perfect and, what's the next word in the text? It's that you may be perfect and complete. The word there has in mind halos, which is the word we get for, for whole, and clarion, which is the word we have for a, a lot or uh, a, a, an allotment. So here, here it is, here it is. So you go to the, let me give you a picture of what this word is talking about. You go to the um, I'm, I'm going I'm to use something that I'm ignorant about. So some of you folks that know a lot about um, tools and how to use the tools, right? You go to the, to the hardware store and you're going to find a tool that you need and, and it's this kit, all right? And, and before you actually purchase the kit, one of the things that you would do, probably if you were prudent about this and save yourself an extra trip to the hardware store, is you're going to make sure all the parts that you need are in that kit, See, the word that we're talking about here with complete has in mind making sure. See, here's the intended result. When perseverance is doing it, let patience, perseverance, have its perfect work. Why? That you may be perfect, you may be mature, and you may be complete. You might have all the parts you're supposed to have to get the job done the way it's supposed to be done. Do you see that? That's the complete that's being spoken of here. God's desire is that you would be Mature in Christ. God's desire is that you would have everything he would desire to have done in your life. He wants that all for you. For his glory, of course, not for yours. That's the objective. Maturity. Completeness. That last phrase is simply another way of saying complete. Lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. You know, as we, a few weeks back, this has been, it's probably been a few months back now. I I, I tend to go back to it quite often. Colossians. Chapter one. Paul says that it is Christ whom we preach. Verse 28, 29. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom Why? That we may present to God every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. You see, the Apostle Paul in his ministry was about doing just this. Teaching and warning every man in Christ with all wisdom given to him. So that what? He might be able to present to God every man perfect, mature, grown up in Christ. This is good news. This is encouraging. Because it helps us to be able to see there's a place for the trial in our lives. And the place for the trial in our lives is not necessarily perhaps what we thought it was, bad But when we see what God's intended purpose is for it, what God is doing in us through it, and what God's going to do himself through this, church, there's hope. There's encouragement. And it really, when we see what the text says, it's a catalyst to do to carry out this first imperative. And that is count it all joy. You see, when you take on a project and you're doing it by yourself, sometimes it can get a little overwhelming. Anybody here ever done a project by themselves and got in the middle of it? And realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm probably not the best one to be in the middle of doing this. This job ended up being bigger than what I thought it was going to be. You see, in our, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ in us. We have the Comforter, the Counselor working in us and through us. What's He doing? He's pointing us always to the things of Christ, reminding us of the very words of Christ so that when we go through a trial, we're not walking through the trial alone. You see, there are many today who are walking through trials all by themselves. There are Christians who have forgotten. They're not alone. Oh, they may think they're alone, but they're not alone. If they have Christ Jesus in them, they are not alone. One other note to add on to this. The Bible is very clear about how we belong to one another in the body of Christ. First Timothy, excuse me, second Timothy chapter two tells us this, gives us two words, flee and pursue. Remember those? Fleeing youthful loss, but it goes on, it says pursue. Not only what not to do, but here's what to do. Where I'm going with this is not necessarily the what to do, but it's who do we do it with? We pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Church, we do these things together. In the context of the trials, James chapter 1, when you try to handle and navigate your trial all by yourself, all by your lonesome, guess what? You're setting yourself up for disaster. We're intended to work through these trials together. Not in isolation, not solo, together. grateful to the Lord for the word here at the beginning of this letter James is writing to the church a scattered group and right out of the gate he's calling them to count it all joy right out of the gate he's addressing their situation these trials they find themselves in And he's helping them to understand and he wants them to know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that's good news to know because with that perseverance, we're then to allow or let that perseverance have its intended finished course. Have its perfect work. Let it have its perfect work as God would have it in your life. And as you do that, here's, here's what's going to happen on the other end. You allow that to happen so that you may be perfect, mature, and complete. Have all the parts necessary, as God would deem, in your life. That you would live a life where you lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. Want shall lack nothing church is the Lord your good shepherd this morning are you going to trust him we're going to be talking a lot about faith a lot about trust a lot about belief a lot about tests trials James is going to come back and he's going to weave in some of these themes time and time again throughout the epistle a great starter these first couple verses a lot for us to consider a lot for us to think through But filled with hope, filled with encouragement. Things to put in our pocket and carry around with us in our days. So that when, perhaps later today or sometime tomorrow, you find yourself encountering a trial, remember what God's Word says, remember what God says about your trials, and be obedient. To walk in the way that he's prescribed. Amen. Let's do that. And let's do it together. As a church. Let's pray. Father it is good. To be able to see the plan that you have. To be able to see the purposes that you have. Revealed to us in your word. Father I pray we would read your word. In reading it we'll discover some wonderful truths. I pray, Father, as we'll see next week. James is moved along by the Spirit as he's writing. He he tends to pick up on these words and go from one subject matter to another subject matter just based on a word or two that he's using. And we'll see that as he ends verse 4, he says, lacking nothing. And he's going to pick up on that word lacking in verse 5 and call us to ask of God if we lack wisdom. Oh, Father, I pray as we look forward to the continuation of this study together that we would in our lives be about asking you for wisdom that's needed to be able to navigate through these trials of various kinds. We need your wisdom on these matters. We'll see in chapter 3 he's going to talk about the difference between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom may we know the difference between the two and may we desire to acquire that wisdom that you give generously we thank you father that you are a good god and we thank you for the trials that come these trials that test our faith These trials that produce perseverance. Which lead to character and lead to hope. We thank you, Lord, and pray that each one of us here would allow you to do your perfect work. To allow this perseverance in us to meet its accomplished end. For, Lord, we see in your word that in doing so, it's intended to grow us up. It's intended to help us look more like your son. It's intended to help us be whole. The person you desire for us to be. Lacking nothing. We praise you for that good news. Refine us I pray Lord. All of us. Refine us. Sanctify us. Shape us. May we take great joy. Walking through these trials that come. Holding on in hope. To you allowing others to see that we're not just talking about Jesus Christ, not just talking about being a Christian, but we endeavor with our lives to live this out through your Holy Spirit. I pray we would do that and give you glory in Jesus name. Amen.